0: CHAPTER FIFTY-FOUR, PART TWO It was at this point, gentlemen, that, enraged by the defection of seven of his former associates, and stung by the mocking voice that at last hailed him, and maddened by his long entombment in a place as black as the bowels of despair, it was then that Steelkilt proposed to the two canalers, thus far apparently of one mind with him, to burst out of their hole at the next summoning of the garrison, and armed with their keen mincing knives, long, crescent, heavy implements with a handle at each end, run amok from the bow sprit to the taffrail, and if by any devilishness of desperation possible, seize the ship. For himself, he would do this, he said, whether they joined him or not. That was the last night he would spend in that den. But the scheme met with no opposition on the part of the other two, They swore they were ready for that, or for any other mad thing, for anything, in short, but a surrender. And what was more, they each insisted upon being the first man on deck when the time to make the rush should come. But to this their leader is fiercely objected, reserving that priority for himself, particularly as his two comrades would not yield, the one to the other in the matter, and both of them could not be first, for the latter would but admit one man at a time. And here, gentlemen, the foul play of this miscreants must come out. Upon hearing the frantic project of their leader, each in his own separate soul had suddenly lighted, it would seem, upon the same piece of treachery, namely, to be foremost in breaking out, in order to be the first of the three, though the last of the ten, to surrender." and thereby secure whatever small chance of pardon such conduct might merit. But when Steelkilt made known his determination still to lead them to the last, they in some way, by some subtle chemistry of villainy, mixed their before-secret treacheries together, and when their leader fell into a doze, verbally opened their souls to each other in three sentences— "'and bound the sleeper with cords and gagged him with cords "'and shrieked out for the captain at midnight. "'Thinking murder at hand and smelling in the dark for the blood, "'he and all his armed mates and harpooners rushed for the forecastle. "'In a few minutes the scuttle was opened "'and bound hand and foot the still-struggling ringleader "'was shoved up into the air by his allies "'who at once claimed the honor of securing a man "'who had been fully ripe for murder.' "'but all these were collared and dragged along the deck like dead cattle, "'and side by side were seized up into the mizzen-rigging "'like three-quarters of meat, and there they hung till morning. "'Damn ye!' cried the captain, pacing to and fro before them. "'The vultures would not touch ye, ye villains!' "'At sunrise he summoned all hands, "'and separating those who had rebelled "'from those who had taken no part in the mutiny,' He told the former that he had a good mind to flog them all round. Thought, upon the whole, he would do so. He ought to. Justice demanded it. But for the present, considering their timely surrender, he would let them go with a reprimand, which he accordingly administered in the vernacular. But as for you, ye carrion rogues, turning to the three men in the rigging, for you, I mean to mince ye up for the tripods, and seizing a rope he applied it with all his might to the backs of the two traitors, till they yelled no more, but lifelessly hung their heads sideways as the two crucified thieves are drawn. My wrist is sprained with ye, he cried at last, but there is still rope enough left for you, my fine bantam, that wouldn't give up. Take that gag from his mouth and let us hear what he can say for himself. For a moment, the exhausted mutineer made a tremulous motion of his cramped jaws, and then, painfully twisting round his head, said in a sort of hiss, "'What I say is this, and mind it well. "'If you flog me, I murder you. "'Say ye so, then see how ye frighten me.' "'And the captain drew off with the rope to strike. "'Best not,' hissed the lakeman. "'But I must.' and the rope was once more drawn back for the stroke. Steelkilt here hissed out something, inaudible to all but the captain, who, to the amazement of all hands, started back, paced the deck rapidly two or three times, and then, suddenly throwing down his rope, said, I won't do it. Let him go. Cut him down. Do you hear? But as the junior mates were hurrying to execute the order, a pale man with a bandaged head arrested them, "'Radney, the chief mate. "'Ever since the blow he had lain in his berth, "'but that morning, hearing the tumult on the deck, "'he had crept out, and thus far had watched the whole scene. "'Such was the state of his mouth, that he could hardly speak. "'But mumbling something about his being willing and able "'to do what the captain dared not attempt, "'he snatched the rope and advanced to his foe. "'You are a coward,' hissed the lakeman. "'So I am,' "'But take that!' "'The mate was in the very act of striking "'when another hiss stayed his uplifted arm. "'He paused, and then pausing no more, "'made good his word, spite of Steel Kilt's threat, "'whatever that might have been. "'The three men were then cut down, "'all hands were turned to, "'and sullenly, worked by the moody seamen, "'the iron pumps, clanged as before. "'Just after dark that day,' When one watch had retired below, a clamour was heard in the forecastle, and the two trembling traders running up besieged the captain door, saying they durst not consort with the crew. entreaties, cuffs, and kicks could not drive them back, so at their own instance, they were put down in the ship's run for salvation. Still, no sign of mutiny reappeared among the rest. On the contrary, it seemed that mainly it still kilts instigation. They had resolved to maintain the strictest peacefulness, obey all orders to the last, and when the ship reached port, desert her in a body. But in order to ensure the speediest end to the voyage, they all agreed to another thing, namely, not to sing out for whales, in case any should be discovered. For spite of her leak, and spite of all her other perils, the town hoe still maintained her mastheads, and her captain was just as willing to lower for a fish that moment as on the day his craft first struck the cruising ground. And Radney, the mate, was quite as ready to change his berth for a boat, and with his bandaged mouth seek to gag in death the vital jaw of the whale. But though the lakeman had induced the seamen to adopt this sort of passiveness in their conduct, he kept his own counsel, at least till all was over, Concerning his own proper and private revenge upon the man who had stung him in the ventricles of his heart, he was in Radney, the chief mate's watch, and as if the infatuated man sought to run more than half way to meet his doom, after the scene at the rigging, he insisted against the express counsel of the captain upon resuming the head of his watch at night. Upon this and one or two other circumstances, Steelkilt systematically. "'built the plan of his revenge. "'During the night, Radney had an unseamanlike way "'of sitting on the bulwarks of the quarter-deck "'and leaning his arm upon the gunwale of the boat, "'which was hoisted up there, a little above the ship's side. "'In this attitude, it was well known, he sometimes dozed. "'There is a considerable vacancy between the boat and the ship, "'and down between this was the sea. "'Steelkilt calculated his time,' and found that his next trick at the helm would come round at two o'clock in the morning of the third day from that in which he had been betrayed. At his leisure, he employed the interval in braiding something very carefully in his watches below. "'What are you making there?' said a shipmate. "'What do you think? What does it look like?' "'Like a lanyard for your bag, but it's an odd one, seems to me.' "'Yes, rather oddish,' said the lakeman, holding it at arm's length before him. "'But I think it will answer. "'Shipmate, I haven't enough twine. Have you any?' "'But there was none in the forecastle. "'Then I must go get some from old Rad,' and he rose to go aft. "'You don't mean to go a-begging to him,' said a sailor. "'Why not? Do you think he won't do me a turn, "'when it's to help himself in the end, shipmate?' And going to the mate, he looked at him quietly and asked him for some twine to mend his hammock. It was given him. Neither twine nor lanyard were seen again. But the next night, an iron ball, closely netted, partly rolled from the pocket of the lakeman's monkey jacket, as he was tucking the coat into his hammock for a pillow. Twenty-four hours after, his trick at the silent helm... "'nigh to the man who was apt to doze over the grave, "'always ready-dug to the seaman's hand. "'That fatal hour was then to come, "'and in the foreordaining soul of Steelkilt "'the mate was already stark and stretched as a corpse "'with his forehead crushed in. "'But, gentlemen, a fool saved the would-be murderer "'from the bloody deed he had planned. "'Yet complete revenge he had, and without being the avenger, for by a mysterious fatality heaven itself seemed to step in to take out of his hands into its own the damning thing he would have done. It was just before daybreak and sunrise of the morning of the second day when they were washing down the decks that a stupid man, drawing water in the main chains, all at once shouted out, "'There she rolls! There she rolls! "'Jesus, what a whale! It was Moby Dick!' "'There she rolls! There she rolls!' What a whale! It was Moby Dick. Moby Dick, cried Don Sebastian. St. Dominic, Sir Sailor, but do whalers have christenings? Whom call you Moby Dick? A very white and famous and most deadly immortal monster, Don. But that would be too long a story. How, how, cried all the young Spaniards, crowding. "'Nay, Don's, Don's, nay-nay, I cannot rehearse that now. "'Let me get more into the air, sirs.' "'The chica, the chica,' cried Don Pedro. "'Our vigorous friend looks faint. Fill up his empty glass.' "'No need, gentlemen. One moment and I proceed. "'Now, gentlemen, so suddenly perceiving the snowy whale within fifty yards of the ship, "'forgetful of the compact among the crew, in the excitement of the moment,' The man had instinctively and involuntarily lifted his voice for the monster, though for some little time past it had been plainly beheld from the three sullen mastheads. All was now a frenzy. The white whale, the white whale, was the cry from captain, mates, and harpooners, who, undeterred by fearful rumors, were all anxious to capture so famous and precious a fish, while the dogged crew eyed askance, and with curses, the appalling beauty of the vast milky mass that lit up by a horizontal spangling sun shifted and glistened like a living opal in the blue morning sea. Gentlemen, a strange fatality pervades the whole career of these events as if verily mapped out before the world itself was charted. The mutineer was the bowsman of the mate and when fast to a fish it was his duty to sit next to him while Radney stood up with his lance in the prow and haul in or slacken the line at the word of command. Moreover, when the four boats were lowered, the mates got the start, and none howled more fiercely with delight than did Steelkilt as he strained at his oar. After a stiff pull, their harpooner got fast, and spear in hand, Radney sprang to the bow. He was always a furious man, it seems, in a boat and now his bandaged cry was to beach him on the whale's topmost back. Nothing loath his bowsmen hauled him up and up through a binding foam that blent two whitenesses together. Till of a sudden the boat struck as against a sunken ledge, and, keeling over, spilled out the standing mate. That instant, as he fell on the whale's slippery back, the boat righted and was dashed aside by the swell, while Radney was tossed over into the sea on the other flank of the whale. He struck out through the spray and for an instant was dimly seen through that veil, wildly seeking to remove himself from the eye of Moby Dick. But the whale rushed around in a sudden maelstrom, seized the swimmer between his jaws and rearing high up with him, plunged headlong again and went down. Meantime, at the first tap of the boat's bottom, the lakeman had slackened the line so as to drop astern from the whirlpool. Calmly looking on, he thought his own thoughts. But a sudden, terrific downward jerking of the boat quickly brought his knife to the line. He cut it, and the whale was free. But at some distance, Moby Dick rose again with some tatters of Radney's red woolen shirt caught in the teeth that had destroyed him, All four boats gave chase again, but the whale eluded them, and finally wholly disappeared. In good time the town hoe reached her port, a savage, solitary place, where no civilized creature resided. There, headed by the lakemen, all but five or six of the foremost men deliberately deserted among the palms, eventually, as it turned out, seizing a large double war canoe of the savages and setting sail for some other harbor, The ship's company being reduced to but a handful, the captain called upon the islanders to assist him in the laborious business of heaving down the ship to stop the leak. But to such unresting vigilance over their dangerous allies was the small band of whites necessitated, both by night and by day, and so extreme was the hard work they underwent, that upon the vessel being ready again for sea, they were in such a weakened condition that the captain durst not put off with them in so heavy a vessel— after taking counsel with his officers, he anchored the ship as far offshore as possible, loaded and ran out his two cannon from the bows, stacked his muskets on the poop and, warning the islanders not to approach the ship at their peril, took one man with him, and, setting the sail of his best whaleboat, steered straight before the wind for Tahiti, five hundred miles distant, to procure a reinforcement to his crew." On the fourth day of the sail a large canoe was seen, which seemed to have touched at a low isle of corals. He steered away from it, but the savage craft bore down on him, and soon the voice of Steelkilt hailed him to heave to or he would run him under water. The captain presented a pistol. With one foot on each prow of the yoked war canoes, the lakemen laughed him to scorn. "'assuring him that if the pistol so much as clicked in the lock "'he would bury him in bubbles and foam. "'What do you want of me?' cried the captain. "'Where are you bound, and for what are you bound?' demanded Steelkilt.No "'No lies. "'I am bound to Tahiti for more men. "'Very good. Let me board you a moment. I come in peace.' With that, he leaped from the canoe, swam to the boat, and, climbing the gunwale, stood face to face with the captain. "'Cross your arm, sir. Throw back your head. Now repeat after me. "'As soon as steel-kilt leaves me, I swear to beach this boat on yonder island, and remain there six days. "'If I do not, may lightning strike me.' "'A pretty scholar,' laughed the lakeman. "'Adiós, senor.' and leaping into the sea, he swam back to his comrades. Watching the boat till it was fairly beached and drawn up to the roots of the coconut trees, Steelkilt made sail again, and in due time arrived at Tahiti, his own place of destination. There luck befriended him. Two ships were about to sail for France, and were providentially in want of precisely that number of men which the sailor headed. They embarked, and so forever got the start of their former captain, had he been at all minded to work them legal retribution. Some ten days after the French ship sailed, the whaleboat arrived, and the captain was forced to enlist some of the more civilized Tahitians, who had been somewhat used to the sea. Chartering a small native schooner, he returned with them to his vessel, and finding all right there, again resumed his cruisings. Where Steel-Kilt now is, gentlemen, none know. But upon the island of Nantucket, the widow of Radney still turns to the sea which refuses to give up its dead, still in dreams sees the awful white whale that destroyed him. "'Are you through?' said Don Sebastian quietly. "'I am, Don. "'Then I entreat you, tell me, if to the best of your own convictions— This, your story, is in substance really true. It is so passing wonderful. Did you get it from an unquestionable source? Bear with me if I seem to press. Also bear with all of us, sir sailor, for we all join in Don Sebastian's suit, cried the company, with exceeding interest. Is there a copy of the holy evangelist in the Golden Inn, gentlemen? Nay, said Don Sebastian. "'but I know a worthy priest nearby "'who will quickly procure one for me. "'I go for it. "'But are you well advised? "'This may grow too serious. "'Will you be so good as to bring the priest also, Don? "'There are no auto de fez in Lima now,' "'said one of the company to another. "'I fear our sailor friend runs risk. "'Let us withdraw more out of the moonlight. "'I see no need for this.' Excuse me for running after you, Don Sebastian, but may I also beg that you will be particular in procuring the largest-sized evangelist you can. This is the priest. He brings you the evangelist, said Don Sebastian, gravely, returning with a tall and solemn figure. Let me remove my hat. Now, venerable priest, further into the light and hold the holy book before me that I may touch it. So help me, heaven, and on my honor, the story I have told ye, gentlemen, is in substance and its great items true. I know it to be true. It happened on this ball. I trod the ship. I knew the crew. I have seen and talked with steel-kilt since the death of Radney. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.